We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. Above all, stay alive. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hello everyone and welcome to part 6 of the Energy of Empire series. The opening clip is of John Connor forming the resistance to Skynet and its Empire of Machines in the, I think quite underrated film, Terminator Salvation. I like the film because it poses questions about the nature of resistance and examines the conflicts that arise from different ideological positions that can split a movement apart. In this episode, we're going to look at the resistance that grew to the United States' emergence as an overseas empire in the 1890s, the Anti-Imperialist League. We'll look at where the League failed and succeeded, what became of it, and what parallels exist with anti-imperialism today. Are we running into the same problems over and over again? Just as empires have patterns they continually recreate, does anti-imperialism too? The Anti-Imperialist League was founded in Boston's Faneuil Hall in June of 1898, during the Spanish-American War. This is the venue where colonists had gathered to protest the Boston Massacre and plot the overthrow of British rule. Later, abolitionists gave talks there denouncing slavery. The League was dedicated to spreading an anti-imperialist message through lectures, public meetings and pamphleteering. They principally sought to prevent any occupation of Puerto Rico and the Philippines. It cut across political and ideological divides. Its members included steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, one of the world's richest men at the time, prominent labour leader Samuel Gompers, and civil rights advocate Booker T. Washington. It encompassed the leader of the Democratic Party, William Jennings Bryan, a co-founder of the Republican Party, George Bootwell, as well as the two previous presidents, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison. Cleveland and Harrison had been happy with some level of imperialism for commercial purposes. They did not, however, want to see the United States become a full-fledged empire. Its founding members included those who had been both for and against the Spanish-American War. That might sound odd, but there had been plenty of people who genuinely saw that war as a mission of liberation, which was now in danger of being corrupted. I'll read a few excerpts of speeches made at the time to give a sense of the League's members' sentiments. Many members were concerned that the transition to empire would fundamentally change the character of the United States. Charles Amos, a theologian and Unitarian pastor, wrote, The policy of imperialism threatens to change the temper of our people and to put us into a permanent attitude of arrogance, testiness and defiance towards other nations. Once we enter the field of international conflict as a great military and naval power, we shall be one more bully amongst bullies. We shall only add one more to the list of oppressors of mankind. Poor Christian as I am, it grieves and shames me to see a generation instructed by the Prince of Peace proposing to set him on a dunce's stool and crown him with a fool's cap. 
Congressman Adolf Meyer warned, with monarchical governments, or governments only nominally republican but really despotic or monarchical, this system of colonies, however burdensome, however tending to conflict, may be pursued without a shock to their systems of government. But with us, the case is different. Our whole system is founded on the right of the people, or the people, to participate in the government. Take this first fatal step and you cannot recall it. Much error we have corrected. Much that may hereafter be, you can correct. But when this step is taken, you are irrevocably pledged to a system of colonialism and empire. There are no footsteps backward. Beyond concern for the American Republic, there was the direct moral question of occupation. Labour leader Samuel Gompers wrote, If we attempt to force upon the natives of the Philippines our rule, and compel them to confront to our more or less rigid mode of government, how many lives shall we take? Of course they will seem cheap, because they are poor labourers. They will be members of the majority in the Philippines, but they will be ruled and killed at the convenience of a very small minority there, backed up by our land and sea forces. The dominant class in the islands will ease its conscience because the victims will be poor, ignorant and weak. One of the most eloquent anti-imperialist voices, Carl Schurz, so impressed Andrew Carnegie with his speech that Carnegie paid for it to be printed on a pamphlet, saying, You have brains, and I have dollars. I can devote some of my dollars to spreading your brains. Schurz wrote, The people of those islands will either peacefully submit to our rule, or they will not. If they do not, and we must conquer them by force of arms, we shall at once have a war on our hands. Now if they resist, what shall we do? Kill them? Let soldiers marching under the stars and stripes shoot them down? Shoot them down because they stand up for independence? Let us relax no effort in this, the greatest crisis the Republic has ever seen. Let us raise high the flag of our country, not as an emblem of reckless adventure and greedy conquest, of betrayed professions and broken pledges, of criminal aggressions and arbitrary rule over subject populations, but the old, the true flag, the flag of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, the flag of government of, for and by the people, the flag of national faith held sacred and of national honour unsullied, the flag of human rights and of good example to all nations, the flag of true civilization, peace and goodwill to all men. The League's initial goal of defeating the Treaty of Paris, which gave the United States control of the Philippines, failed when William Jennings Bryan effectively switched sides and voted to ratify it. Bryan's public position was that the quickest way to liberate the Philippines was to annex them first. However, it's more likely he had his eye on the Democratic nomination for the presidency. This is a trend that continues through history. In most recent years, Barack Obama and Donald Trump campaigned on ending the war's rhetoric, only to have an apparent change of heart once in power. Anti-war efforts are often derailed by those who initially espouse anti-war rhetoric. After the invasion, the League sought to expose the abuses, the massacres and torture, being carried out by US troops. They published a letter by a private A.F. Miller, a soldier serving in the Philippines. 
Miller wrote, Now, this is the way we give them the water cure. Lay them on their backs, a man standing on each hand and each foot. Then put a round stick in the mouth and pour a pail of water in the mouth and nose. And if they don't give up, pour in another pail. They swell up like toads. I tell you, it is a terrible torture. There was certainly hostility to the League. The title of this episode, Unhung Traitors, is how Theodore Roosevelt referred to its members. There's no particular reason to think he was being hyperbolic. The commander of the New York chapter of the Grand Army of the Republic declared that all League members should have their citizenship stripped from them and be denied the protection of the flag they dishonour. This all sounds reminiscent of Fox News 100 years later during the Iraq War. Most of what the uh, truth and recruitment movement right now is doing is trying to give potential recruits a full view of what military service is, whether it's exposure to depleted uranium or the fact that nearly a third of, return, of female veterans report uh, some vo form of military sexual violence or if it's the upwards of 80% of post-traumatic st stress uh, that is happening right now with returning veterans. And so to give potential recruits that full uh, view of what the military life I, is I like. I don't mind those things being, I don't think they're facts, I think they're propaganda uh, by an anti-military crew, which you're sounding more and more like. Um, well, I mean, and, I, and I hope that's not the case. I mean, I hope you're just uh, against the war and not against the military, but you are sounding like an anti-military person here. Well, as a, as a veteran of nine years, uh, I think that it's preposterous to think that I would be anti-military. I want to take care of our veterans, things like depleted uranium, uh, military sexual violence that I think should never happen, but f of course quite it frankly never do happen. happen. I mean, everybody knows it should never happen. But, but in any happen, organization, you're, going to, have, aware of you're going to have things that, that aren't what they should be. But the basic theme here is starve the military. Starve them by Mr. Copeland and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Don't give them any recruits. Force the military back from Iraq and other theaters. And that puts us all in danger, Mr. Millard, and you know it. Well, I think that the Iraq war puts us all in danger. And if we limit the amount of recruits, then yeah, it quite possibly does uh, have a big potential in ending the Iraq war because we do need to protect American okay, soil. Okay, so you do, do want to, to limit the recruits. America. You do want to hurt the military. That's what you want to do, sir. Well, I, I don't want to hurt the military well, whatsoever. By limiting as a nine-year veteran of the military, as a nine-year veteran of the military, I'd like to see our veterans taken care of when they come home, which just I doesn't I think every happen. American wants to see them taken care of, and we on this program give hundreds of thousands of dollars so that may take place. But again, I think you're being a little sly here. Let me ask you one more question. Mm -hmm. If the thing turns around in Iraq, and it's a big if because of the Iraqi government's incompetence and corruption, but things are getting better by most viewpoints over there, would you be disappointed? Throughout the ages, the state has claimed to provide protection that you must be willing to kill or be killed for, no questions asked. In its most modern incarnation, it is manifesting in an imperial medical court, which calls to strip healthcare from those who do not accept vaccines manufactured by, frankly, criminal cartels. This goes beyond being a practical measure and becomes a way of punishing anyone not buying into the system. We also see people losing their jobs because of anti-imperialism. Back at the turn of the 20th century, the president of Northwestern University, Henry Raid Rogers, was fired by the school trustees for his opposition to America's new overseas imperial projects. 
I'm sure lots of livelihoods were threatened over opposition to the Iraq war. The Dixie Chicks being blacklisted by thousands of country radio stations for criticising George W. Bush remains in my mind. Today, doctors can be struck off for expressing medical views dissenting from the COVID narrative. Well, I was particularly interested in something that you've been working on, and that has to do with this whole matter of the threats against physicians if they say the wrong thing, in particular about these vaccines, that they can actually have, if they're accused of spreading medical misinformation, quote unquote, it is conceivable that they can have their licenses taken away. Is that right? That is absolutely right. So this was inconceivable two years ago that you would have your certification or license threatened for doing anything other than poor practice of medicine or criminal activity that had something to do with substance abuse or if you were having inappropriate relations with patients or something like that. Obviously, all of those actions are are absolutely heinous and would warrant uh, license suspension or revocation. But this idea that you have a different valid medical opinion than the CDC or the National Institute of Health and uh, speaking that opinion out loud, having an adverse impact on your ability to earn a living as a physician has been unheard of but it is being actively advocated and promoted. And I, I know people who have been adversely impacted by it. We also see economic divisions fracturing the league. Just as today there is a left, right and libertarian split in the anti-war movement, so it was a hundred years ago, with many league members being reluctant to support the presidential candidacy of William Jennings Bryan, due to his views on silver as currency. Monetary policy was apparently a big issue back then. One weakness of the League that pro-imperialists could exploit was that they committed the same fallacy I said I would be committing at the start of this series, the salt water fallacy. If you recall, this fallacy is to believe an empire only becomes such when its forces cross an ocean. Imperialism was in no way a new thing for the United States in the 1890s. The only novelty was using ships to carry it out. The policy was simply an extension of the Indian Wars overseas. Anti-imperialists were keen to present this turn as something novel. To do otherwise would have placed them in the rather awkward position of having to criticise all of US history. Pro-imperialists recognised and exploited this fact, with Senator Orville Platt saying, The literal application of the anti-imperialist doctrine would have turned back the Mayflower from our coast and would have prevented our expansion westward to the Pacific Ocean. There are aspects I don't find parallels with today. For example, modern anti-war efforts are often split over questions of conspiracy. Resistance to the Iraq and Afghani wars included a substantial number of people who believed 9-11 was an inside job, that it was carried out specifically to bring these wars about. Whatever else this is, it can be highly divisive, with those adopting such a position seeing more reticent anti-war types as either timid or complicit. Those opposed to such conspiracies 
see them as discrediting the movement. This problem is then exasperated by there being an infinite number of conspiracy theories, from the quite mundane through to the ones about the planes that hit the towers actually being holograms. I don't see this situation arising in the 1890s. This could be because either it simply didn't, or history hasn't recorded it. There is, however, no sign of anyone chanting, the USS Maine was an inside job. I'm willing to be corrected on this, but conspiracy theorising seems to be more of a 20th century phenomenon. The League obviously ultimately failed in its mission to prevent the occupation of either Puerto Rico or the Philippines, and the United States' lurch into overseas empire. A hundred years later, the anti-war movement would fail to stop the invasion and destruction of Iraq. It's hard to judge its successes, however. Had it not been throwing wrenches in the gears of the machine, who knows how accelerated the US's imperial ambitions would have become. In the same way, were it not for the anti-war movement of our own time, perhaps there would have been an all-out war with Iran by now. Okay, thank you for listening. In this episode, I've been again drawing on Stephen Kinzer's The True Flag, and on the work of historian Tom Woods, including his book co-authored of Maury Polner, We Who Dared Say No to War. Next time, we'll start to look at the years after Theodore Roosevelt ascended to the presidency. 